Today's sponsor is Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash decode. We'd also like to thank Qualcomm for making today's show possible. First, they connected the phone to the internet. Now they're connecting the internet to everything else. Qualcomm, they're the restless inventors bringing the future forward faster. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person making loud phone calls in your Uber pool, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is someone I've tried to get here for a long time and someone I've known for a very long time, Bill Gurley, general partner at the venture capital firm Benchmark. He has invested in companies ranging from Grubhub to Zillow to Uber and serves on several board of directors. Before he joined Benchmark in 1999, Bill worked at Compaq and spent four years as a tech analyst on Wall Street. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We have known each other a long time. Very long time. I knew you as an analyst, I think. I don't know if I knew you at Compaq, because I did cover Compaq. (laughs) But I did cover, I remember the CEO at the time. So there's so much to talk about, but I think, you know, people know you really well here in Silicon Valley, but some of our listeners don't. So like, walk through how you got to Benchmark. And I, I, I wrote the story when you went to Benchmark, if you recall. In 1999, for the Wall Street Journal, you had been at a pre- another venture capital. How far firm. back do you want me to well, go? Well, I just want. To, how did you get into like how, tech analysts? Let's start with tech analysts and compact. Well, so I, I had been. I had a computer engineering degree on, in undergrad. My sister was a double E out of Rice and was employed 63 at Compact. Wow! So I was exposed. Where'd you grow up? Where did in you? Houston. Oh, yeah, so outside. yeah. Of my course. father. My father was yeah. in the space program. Worked at Johnson Space Center. Uh huh. And so and Compact was there, right? Yeah. In Texas. And her going through that obviously brought a lot of experience exposure into our family of being at a startup. She was sure. given options. Uh-huh. I think Kleiner was an investor. Oh, in yeah, a long time and so ago. I wouldn't have expected to have that exposure that early in my life. I also, like everyone you've probably had in this chair, had a Commodore VIC-20 yep. mm-hmm. and used to code out of magazines and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up at the University of Florida where I rode the uh, end of the bench on the basketball team and mm-hmm. got a comp sci degree. And I, I went back, I went to Compaq where I'd spent some summers and worked there for a couple of years. And then I found I was drawn to a broader calling. Like mm-hmm. I would, I started work on like the third PC and it looked a right, lot like a the second and yeah. the first. And what did so, you do? What did you, what did you? I, w- I worked in a team that, that did problem solving. So when a new computer was coming to market, mm-hmm. it, they'd put it into test and it would fail. Uh, and, and my team, we'd get thrown in a room with like a logic analyzer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shouldn't I they have known that like before? Red Adair or yeah. So it was fun. This it was, was the fun. 80s, right? Yeah. This is 89 to 91. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up was going. was around to, then, too. A lot of, because I remember AOL was, was on that one computer, uh, the. Can't remember. Oh, they were all small. Computers. I had a prodigy account when right? I was working there, and I used yeah. to trade stocks, which was part of. So I ended up going to business school, and I started trading stocks. And um, like Borland went public during that yep. time, yep. and so this combination of being fascinated with technology, looking for a broader thing to do, and then getting you know interested in investing and right. tech and disruption and that kind of thing. So I went to business school. I thought about trying to get into venture at business school. I went and met with some Austin venture people who said. Kid, you're way too young. Go mm-hmm. get 20 years of work experience. Right, because they had operators. That was that's almost. what they said. Yeah. yeah, and so which is ironic, and I can come back to that. But based on how we choose people at mm-hmm. Benchmark now. But anyway, I ended up while I was at business school. Everybody cracks open every Fortune and Business Week, and they read everything like because mm-hmm. they want to think they're 
they're professional business people. And so I was reading about all these amazing analysts at Goldman Sachs at the time, Dan Benton and people like that, and, and Rick Sherlin. Mm-hmm. And they were like they were always quoted like opining and I right. just I got interested in it. I literally went, wanted to opine. Yeah, I went to Wall Street and just knocked on doors right. like cold like what you read about and got very lucky that uh, CS First Boston gave me an opportunity. Right, which was a big deal at the time. Yeah, and then two weeks after I joined, Charlie Wolf was there covering PCs and he announced he wanted to resign and back off. Oh. And so I went into uh, my tiny little apartment with no air condition and wrote like a 20 page assessment of the PC industry. Like, what did even you tap away on? When did two, you, I don't remember. Yeah. Like a little <laughs> K-Pro. Kind of I'm thinking K-Pro perhaps yeah. around then. And, um, and I went in and begged Trash for 80. Charlie's job basically yeah. uh-huh. and was very fortunate. Not only did uh, Charlie share with me all his models, but two of the other ranked analysts, David Corris and Dan Benton, who's, who still comes to your conference every mm-hmm. year, they gave me all their models, and they all left the field. Ah. So all of a sudden, like... Where did they go? Dan and yeah. David went to the buy side. Right, yep. Charlie went into academia. Right. They just, like, got out of We're the way leaving. and gave Wasn't me all that a stuff. signal to you? Uh-oh, I better get out of here. I, it, it couldn't have been more fortunate, an opportunity. right? Because I moved up to yeah. the ranks very quickly. That's somewhat how I got and my so, job at the Washington Post. People retired or left. So that was a big event. And then the other big event w- was at Stuart Alsop's conference, uh, which Charlie which, helped me get into. Mm-hmm, so, like, Which was the big deal agenda. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah like, you know, you're standing uh-huh. at that first dinner and there's sure. Bill Gates and Larry Ellison and all this yep. stuff. And you're like, I'm just a nobody. This yeah. is crazy. But anyway, one of those first few years, they were selling a, um, a Palm Pilot. Uh-huh. And it had the attendees' contact information. Ah. And I had just started this clever? newsletter called Above the Crowd, which mm-hmm. was a fax at the time. Yeah. And so I was just like, oh, wait, this is too easy. So I paid like $200 for this Palm Pilot, and I spammed With the, Above the Crowd, the yeah. The most important people in, newsletter. In, the, in the technology yeah. industry. Yeah, you've always been a writer. Oh, yeah. we'll talk about that soon. Well, it came from the, uh, it came from the analyst days, because sure, you write big, long yeah, reports. But it, yeah, yeah, right, absolutely. But they used to write reports a lot better yeah. then. There Thank was a you. lot of people, you know, Mary, you, even... Uh, Henry Blodgett wrote some fantastic stuff, though it didn't end so well for him there. So then I I should hurry this along. So after three years of doing that, I was getting burned out. It's a tough job being a sales side analyst. And I was thinking about going to the buy side and, in fact, had been interviewing with Capital Group in L.A. Who I still have a ton of respect for. And Frank Quattrone called me literally out of the blue. And he had left Morgan Stanley on, Mm -hmm. I think, a good Friday in 96. And... um, we eventually ended up sitting down and he said um, that he'd like me to join their new firm. And I said, you know, I'm kind of burned out on this analyst thing. And he mm-hmm. said, well, what do you want to do long term? And I said, I'd love to be a venture capitalist. And Frank said, why don't I move you to Silicon Valley? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can cover any sector you want. And I'll introduce you to every venture capitalist I know. Ah, well, that's an offer. Yeah. And it also had a financial. What did he, what did he take your soul? That's, I mean, Frank kind of looks satanic. So did he like say you must. No, look, I'll, I'll, you know, there are people that, you know, are super loyal to Frank and I'm yeah. one of them. Yeah. And when someone makes a commitment like that and helps you get your dream job. And you work for them. And you work Yeah, for I them. did. I did. And we, we were very fortunate. We, we were lead left on the Amazon IPO. Yep. Which yep. Be that's a fa- when it started. Fam- that's famous trivia question one day. Who, yeah. t- who took Amazon public? Deutsche well, Morgan. Frank was in the middle of all those. Yeah. Or, you know, and, or else buying and selling companies. He was involved in a lot of that. Yes, that and time Blackburn period. was the uh, 
the banker on that worked alongside me who mm-hmm. then went to Amazon has been so there ever see, since. Before we get into what was that period like? Because I was here too. I remember the, these things, and I don't at the risk of sounding aged. It really was an exciting time. I mean, well, for me, it was the first my real first exposure to Silicon Valley. I'd been out here a couple times as a PC analyst, but sure. but the PC industry wasn't really in like Silicon centered Valley. in Silicon no, Valley because IBM and Compaq and they even were in Texas. AST was in Irvine, like right. it was, and Gateway was in Sioux Falls. Mm-hmm. And so I just I didn't travel here all that much, and then so I was just suddenly put here and because I, internet. Yeah, that's why. And and by the way, that's the sector that I asked Frank that I wanted to cover, and and of course I knew nothing about it, so I mm-hmm. went and bought all these like TCP/IP books and stuff, which I don't think helped me at all, but I read them anyway. And it was super exciting, you mm-hmm. know. And I knew a few people like. When Frank called me, I called McNamee because mm-hmm. he, he had been at um, T. Rowe. Mm-hmm. And so he was someone I had known from the buy side. Right. And there's a few others like Glenn Cater and some of the Tiger guys. And so I called Roger and I said, you know, I don't know, Frank, should I take a meeting? He's like, immediately. Like, right. He's like, you have to. This will get you to Silicon Valley. And so it's been great. Roger's always been someone that I've called along the years to help me think through decisions. But yeah, it was so exciting. Mm -hmm. Like I can remember one of the first meetings was in the train caboose for CNET Mm -hmm. with Halsey and Shelby. Mm -hmm. And I knew nothing about media or advertising. And that doesn't um, stop many people. And Halsey was just remarkably upset that, that, that I wasn't like getting it faster. And Shelby got, God bless him, was just super calm. Yeah, calm and casual yeah. and like bringing me along and teaching me. But yeah. Yeah, so you did that one. That was interesting. He used to call me in the middle of the night because he said, Why is my story on A22, the Wall Street <laughs> Journal, and the Yahoo's on the fr- front or whatever? Yeah. And I said, You're lucky you're on A22 <laughs> because I got you on A20 or else you wouldn't be there at all. But that, <laughs> that I, didn't end well for Halsey. No, but I've stayed in touch with Shelby. He's, I yeah. consider him a wonderful gentleman. Yeah. So you so then you shifted over to venture capital finally with. Yeah. Um, I was Anne. with Hum- Remember Winblad for Winblad, 18 yeah. months and then, and then came to Benchmark. And so that was a big deal. when you. I remember that was like, nah, like you left there. It was like, a, and they, they were shifting at Benchmark at the time. They sort of had this old school. Yeah, two weeks after I announced the uh, Hummer Winblad position, um, Andy Ratcliffe cornered me at a conference and said, uh, dude, like, why didn't you call me? Like, mm-hmm. and, I, and quite frankly, I would have to say, I was so fixated with being a venture capitalist when someone started to ask me yeah I, I take said, the first yes. date <laughs> yeah, like, I was like, yes, yes yes um and so anyway and they were a well-known firm and was yeah yeah, to yeah. Gates and, and yeah, yeah and i and i and i'm still very close friends with john i think the cultural fit with with benchmark yeah is just well i remember like, tall white guys well, essentially <laughs> come on i sat across them when they were talking it's about not ebay just that. The, the, someone approaches you that works for an equal partnership mm-hmm. you know because everyone yeah. else that's working their way into venture sure start has, to the bottom has, like starts at the bottom with only a piece of the action and mm-hmm. you got to work your way up and no that someone was someone else's name firm yeah it's a it's pretty compelling offer when someone comes absolutely and, says, and you were the tallest of all of those to, tall men we want there. you to be one of us yeah yeah, yeah. so you but it did cause reverberations everyone was sort of talking I remember it was a big deal because you were sort of the bright young thing at the time well I guess now that I've been here something like 16 or 17 (laughs) years it's probably the right place yeah and and it was changing also that was a changing um yeah I mean starting to shift that particular to a certain extent the beginning of my venture career was a little bit like being near the top of a roller coaster yeah and then it just slammed yeah absolutely slammed down before I ever had a chance 
to really establish myself, you know, and build a track. This was record. the end of the first internet bubble. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah and, it, and, it, and when I first arrived at Benchmark, it was like nothing can go wrong. Right. Like there was an IPO every yep. week. And, and they had done eBay. The they had done, price. yeah. And then wham, man, the door came down. So hard. what was that like for informative? Because you do write a lot about bubbles and worry. You're like the worry ward of Silicon <laughs> Valley. And we'll talk about that in the next section. But what was that like as, a, as an early venture capitalist when you have that happen to you? It's intimidating. I mean, I, I think for anyone that, that breaks into venture, years two, three, and four, mm-hmm. unless you're as lucky as, say, Kohler with Instagram or Roloff with YouTube, are just anxiety-ridden mm-hmm. because you've basically – it's the, people use the, the metaphor of children. You basically have a bunch of middle-aged teenagers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with acne that mm-hmm. are awkward and clumsy and you haven't proven anything. That's right. if you do early stage. And right. so it's a gut check. And it's really helpful, at least it was helpful for me at Benchmark with the equal partnership, is there's just this kind of team orientation where if you feel like you're struggling, people are yeah, you know, they getting all have beside a you. Yeah, you have a stake and you're doing well. And they're saying, it's not an eat what you, you, what you kill kind of situation. Not at all. Yeah, so you, what was your first investment? What was the- My first investment was a company uh, at Hummer Winblad was a company called Employees, which was SaaS HR ah, early. way before its time. It was yeah. like Workday 10 years early. Yeah, yeah, or Zenefit. I was just visiting yeah. their offices. Yeah, very similar yeah. because uh, we didn't charge the same way, but uh, the same customer set. And but it was ADP the beginning of that idea. Buying it for mm-hmm. 150 The big we, old lumbering giant. We didn't make nearly as much money. And, and we made a huge mistake by choosing HR instead of sales. Right. Because HR is a corporate purchase by someone who doesn't have any authority. Right, right, and yeah. And sales is a credit card purchased by someone who has all the authority. Right, right, absolutely, <laughs> so Salesforce. hard lesson. <laughs> yeah, so you did that, and what was your first benchmark? What were you involved in? It was in? Opinions. Opinion. oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Was that a success or a failure for me? Well, you? we ended up merging it with Deal Time, went mm-hmm. public, and eBay bought it for yeah. six, $700 million. Yeah, so you feel good about that. But that was that, that was a hot company, and then sort it of It was, not. and then, yeah, it was covered in New York Times Magazine, yeah, and then and then the bubble burst, and then there was Explain the opinions split. for people who and, don't know. Oh, I remember you were on the covers. It was always on the covers, that Guy. Yeah, Opinions was an idea. It was a big UGC idea at the mm-hmm. beginning of the internet, which was basically to allow UGC uh, reviews of anything and everything. Right. And they started in the categories more like products. Right. Um, they did experiment with services. And the CEO was? Which, uh, CEO was Naval Ravikant. Naval, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and interesting story about him. We ended up splitting uh, from him, mm-hmm. and there ended up being a lawsuit. And mm-hmm. this was, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago. And mm-hmm. And I had always thought of Naval as one of the, the smartest people I'd ever met. But when someone sues you, you tend to yeah. get on the other side of yeah, things. Yeah. And just this past winter, I was in um, at a ski event that Chris Saka put together. And uh-huh. he was invited. We sat down and we talked for the first oh, time. Wow. In like, in oh, like, in and like, hugged it, it out? Hugged yeah, it, out. it was awesome. Huh. It was just like, it reminded me of why we worked together in, in the, the first, first place. place yeah. But I regret that we spent... 16 years not chatting. Yeah. He's obviously gone on to do uh, do some spectacular things. But it's sold. So let's talk a little about your, and then in the next section, I want to talk a little bit about your philosophies, because you do what you write about, because you write about bubbles mm-hmm. and things like that. But what was your philosophy of investing then? What was your, what were you doing in the early days? And, and we'll talk later about how it changed. Yeah. And, you know, I think coming from Wall Street 
And when I was on Wall Street, just devouring any book I could on investing philosophy, I think I bring a structured approach. You are. You're um, very. And, you're almost academic in yeah, the way you think about it. And and the way I I think about it, which will sound trite, but I'm always looking for some form of competitive advantage, like mm-hmm. some type of unfair ability to compete in the marketplace. I don't get drawn to the kind of enterprise deals that are just who has the better sales force, like knock them down kind of thing. People make money doing that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a valid approach. I just, I prefer their, I mean, I can remember the open table scenario, you know, we're meeting with, with Chuck and it's like, he's in three restaurants and we're like, how could this ever work? And mm-hmm. you're like, well, it'll work if we can tip it into a network effect. Right. And then everyone has to buy it. Right. Um, and that's what played out. Right. You know? And it's, it's that kind of So is that what convinced thinking. you? Like what advantage well, you study, do you mean? You, just, just well, in that, on- in that case, we were betting on the existence of a network effect. Right. And, and you, you know, people talk about network effects all the time, but you come up with ways to try and analyze whether it's possible or not. Mm-hmm. And will more diners lead to more restaurants and will more restaurants lead to more diners? And right. are there ways to measure and study that or to implement the, the go-to-market strategy such that it exploits it? you know, mm-hmm. as much as possible. So do you, does your analytical approach hurt you sometimes? You're, you're not a gut investor that some people Oh, it can't. It can. I mean, I think venture is like really hard and mm-hmm. there's a lot of luck involved and, you know, mistakes that you make, you know, especially missing ideas mm-hmm. um, are way, they're, it's called asymmetric returns. But like if you invest in something that doesn't work, you lose one times your money, you miss Google, you know, yeah. you lose 10,000 yeah. times your yep. money. So you have to orient yourself towards what Bruce uses the phrase, what could go right. Uh-huh. right? And you have to kind of think that way oh, all the time. And you're more likely being overly analytical to talk yourself out of things. Right. Right. And That's so, what I mean. And so you have to twist your brain. In yeah. The right Cause you way. can think of all the wrong things. What could go wrong? Yeah. And, and, and by the way, the Google example is, you know, one that, that kind of fit that at the time. Excite was, was going yeah. Excite was going bankrupt. Yep, they were. And Yahoo stock had fallen. Mm-hmm. I think it was a little bit later that Yahoo stock had fallen from like eighty two to ten. Mm-hmm. And so search didn't look no. that interesting. Right. And you had two, you know, academics. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one there's the venture rule book, you know, don't back right. academics who right. insist on being CEO. Right. Like so there was a number of things yeah. that said don't do it. So um, that's but when two of the smartest guys Sequoia and investors Mike Morrison. ever. John Doerr. Stepped up and did it. Yeah. They also wanted a price that was seemingly ridiculous, obviously very, yeah. very good. Did you pass on that one? We failed to pursue it. And I, uh, it's always in, important to state it that way because right. to say pass makes it sound like you had a chance. I had a chance. I don't yeah. know if we had a chance. Right. They presented to us right. and we failed to pursue it. And if we had, we would have had to compete with two of the best. Right. I, absolutely. I, I remember visiting that garage, Susan Wojcicki's garage. At the there time. were 25 employees when I met with them. Yeah. Yeah. And they were crazy. Let's be <laughs> clear. Yeah, That's I know. I mean, they were. Well, and there well, were a lot of search things that had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And Yahoo still was very strong. Yeah. And in fact, their big break was when they put Google on the Yahoo platform as the search engine. I remember. And it was a fatal error for Yahoo at the time, even though they got a big stake in it. Yep. Yeah. So, all right, when we get back, we're going to talk about sort of how you've developed as a venture capitalist and also some of your writings. Because you create all, you always create like sort of a big old mess. <laughs> like people start <laughs> talking about the things you write, especially around bubbles. Um, and so recently, you've been writing about bubbles, and you've written about them several times. You're sort of the voice of warning um, in the industry. When we get back with Bill Gurley of Benchmark. 
Today's show is brought to you by Audible, which has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can listen to all of that wherever you are, thanks to Audible's free apps for iOS, Android, and Amazon devices. It's not a streaming or rental service. With Audible, you own the books. Bill, what book should I listen to? What's a book that you think would teach me something? I'm going to give you something? two. All right. Uh, we've been talking a lot internally about trying to identify great talent. And mm-hmm. there's a couple of books out, one called Mindset and the other one called Grit by Angela Duckworth. Okay. And they're they're both about trying to identify high performance. But the same talent. author. Different, different, different authors. Different so what do you like different. about each of them? Mindset's about trying to identify people who have a growth mindset, which means they try to learn on their own. Mm -hmm. So they're constantly pushing themselves to be Mm self-learners, which is something we've seen. And Grit's just about uh, finding people that are passionate and perseverant. Mm -hmm. And And there are signs of these people? uh, According to both authors. All right, okay. I'm trying to think of self-learning. The only person I can think of is Mark Zuckerberg, the most self-learning person in Silicon Valley. When you become an Audible member, you get a free book every month plus a 30% discount on all regularly priced audiobooks. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash D-E-C-O-D-E. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. We're here with Bill Gurley of Benchmark, who I've known a long time. We're talking about investing and philosophy and writing about it. Now, you've been very public about your opinions about it. A lot of venture capitalists are super secretive. You haven't been. You were an analyst before, so you're used to writing and putting your opinions out there. And you, at various times, you've caused sort of a kerfuffle talking about the bubble right yep. in the top, at the top of where everyone's feeling good. You're like, just a second, <laughs> sort of like the ant at a garden party sometimes. Talk about, you had, re- you had written about the trouble a-coming. This was about six months ago? Yeah. I would tell you that, you know, as a backdrop, and then I'll, I'll dive into it, that I, ha- I have a philosophy that the very best entrepreneurs are disserved by bubbles. Mm-hmm. In other words, they could raise money at any time. Mm-hmm. And when bubbles come along, almost anyone can raise money. Mm-hmm. And so it creates excessive competition. You get companies that Do are misbehaving and doing things that can disrupt markets. And so I, you know, I found, and maybe I'm just a contrarian, but I, I found that like 99 and 2015 were two of my least favorite times in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And some of it I would tie back to just also the behavior that you see. You, you once said, I read something you wrote, <laughs> you said too much arrogance, too much bullshit will be the downfall of yeah. Silicon Valley. Yeah. And it's interesting because that, that reminds me of a conversation I was having with Rachel Whetstone, who now runs comms at mm-hmm. Uber. And shortly after we met, she said, do you watch HBO Silicon Valley? I said, no, I don't. I tried to watch the first episode and I didn't like it. Ah. You know? And she said, you have to watch it. Mm-hmm. And I said, why do, you have to, why do I have to watch it? She said, the rest of the world is laughing at us. Ah. And I still to this day think half of the people in Silicon Valley don't know that it's a parody. Uh, it's true. They like it. They like being paid attention <laughs> to get, it all, I, I think. I, I, I yeah. guess. But when we, you know, also like I'll give you another example of the kind of stuff that just makes me cringe. I, I was at an investor conference last year in, in Vegas, a private investor that conference. That one, I know so, which one. So Where you, everything leaks out, unicorn, that private one. Unicorns are, are presenting, yes. right? One mm-hmm. after another. And I probably sit in on eight unicorn presentations and five of them use the word trillion. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think I had heard the word trillion in an investor presentation mm-hmm. before that day. It's a big dream. But we had done something in the ecosystem to encourage this type of outlandish promotion. Growing to the moon. Where you feel like you need to use words like trillion. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's dangerous. You know, when, when we act like we have the right to disrupt everything or eat every industry, but we're not willing to play by the rules of 
profitability or gap accounting or, or being public, like we look like entitled brats. Mm -hmm. And I think the end state, the really bad end state of that type of behavior is we invite regulation, right. you know, from Washington that, that I prefer we not have. Right. But I think that's possible mm -hmm. if we play it too loose. If we play it too loose, if we talk about all these numbers, and it's not so much the, you know, every three or four years, the journal has a story about the parties, like, which I find, I think they just recycle the same story. I don't know if it's so much the parties. The, what I was talking about in that quote was I was interviewing uh, an author who was writing about how innovation dies and how it's created. And someone asked me, and I said, well, it's going to be that. It's the same thing every time. And, and people discount risk slowly, like they forget about, you right. know, pain and they forget mm -hmm. about layoffs and they forget about that this is supposed to be hard mm -hmm. and that you, you need to be profitable. And the younger generation, you know, they're taught in very short time windows. So most of the entrepreneurs working today weren't around in 99. Right. So, so they, they have no muscle memory of it whatsoever. There and is also a mentality, though, if you have a depression era mentality, you don't do anything, too. That's true. That's true. There absolutes, you know, absolutes on either end aren't, mm -hmm. aren't going to get you anywhere. So and, and, and in fact, I would I would suggest that that there are two types of entrepreneurs. They're the incredible operator who might be like a COO. They hate these times because they're undifferent. They can't promote. Mm -hmm. They can't. And then there's this hyper-promotional person that only comes to Silicon Valley when, when, when the time is right, right and then they go away. Right. And boy, those drive me crazy. You see the scammers then. You start to oh, see the scammers. And, and, was... and you see it in the deal flow. So it goes from being 10% hyper-promotional to 90. Right. And I've even heard stories that I find hard to believe, but I've heard stories of reputable people in Silicon Valley telling entrepreneurs, you should overstate your numbers in your fundraising deck because mm -hmm. everyone's doing it and everyone's just going to discount them anyway. Right. If that's, if people are really doing that, it's distasteful, you know? Well, I, are you, are you, before, let's talk about what you wrote about the bubble. You talked about it being, these issues around, what are your, were your main worries and how well, do you the, look at them now? Because there was just sort of an article yeah, in the journal yeah. talking about people are fixing themselves and right, do you think right, that's the right. case? Um, somewhat, yeah. I mean, look, the piece that Sequoia did, the deck that Sequoia did in 09 yes, was extremely helpful to the benchmark portfolio. Mm -hmm. Like, because you went into that next board meeting and everybody had kind of reevaluated where they were. And, and Katie Benner, who wrote that story that you're talking about, called me and said, you know, she started researching this topic and she started calling entrepreneurs and some of the stuff I had written had inspired them to change their behavior. Right. So th that actually means a lot to me mm -hmm. if that was a result. If we, if we play these bubbles out, like if we just get extremely promotional to the end state, mm -hmm. then you have the type of crash you had in 01, mm -hmm. which is complete wipeout. Mm -hmm. Like, 50% of people get laid off and it'd certainly be better if we could avoid that kind are, of thing. Are you, as I'm talking about you as venture capitalists, sort yep. of responsible and indulgent of these entrepreneurs? Because, you know, you, you have Mark and you talking about it, but Mark's knocked up the prices. Every You all knock up the prices quite high. I think everybody, you know, is to a certain extent has to play the game on the field. You can't you know, I like to use the example of Hortonworks and Cloudera. So, you know, we're we're in this company, Hortonworks, it's a Hadoop company. Cloudera raises nine hundred and fifty million dollars from Intel. Right. What do you do? Yeah. You, I mean, you you could sit around and say we're going to get to profitability, but yeah. you, you're, you're not going to matter. Right. You, know, you might as well lock the door and leave the building. Right. And so you're forced into a game of capital warfare that you may have not been ready to play. And so I, I don't I don't know that any one person 
is responsible. These things tend, Silicon Valley and venture capital have always been cyclical. And so there's something about human nature that causes us to be increasingly risk-seeking until we, well, <laughs> until someone comes along and, and like really punishes well, look, everybody. It, it, that's studied in Iceland, the banks, they started yep. just taking, and it's often men, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> I, but they, uh, women don't enough. make the same risks, but they underestimate risk. Right, and there's severely. tons of books that have been written on different mm-hmm. types of asset bubbles. Now, there's another contributing factor, I think, right now, which is we've had low global interest rates for right. the past seven mm-hmm. years. And I was fortunate enough this summer to meet uh, Warren Buffett. Chamath was the one that made that happen. But uh, we only had one question each. And so I asked him, I said, you know, in, in our industry, we're seeing that low interest rates are leading to overt competition that's irrational. And he says, you bet it is. Yeah, yeah. And he's seeing it in his businesses sure. as well. And, and I think it's played out in like natural gas and all these other yeah. pocket, uh, real estate in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. All these asset prices, because with interest rates so low, you just have people looking for yield. And so money sloshes around. Sloshes around. I always say there's not enough rat holes to shove it all down. It, so. It's true. And I would have never imagined in my life as a venture capitalist that the biggest problem would be too much capital mm-hmm. everywhere. So but, what do you do? Here you are trying to compete in the, say, with your Hadoop company and others. What do you do? Do you discipline yourself or you just go along for the crazy ride? Well, I write about what could go wrong on the hope that it might correct something. Yeah. <laughs> but I may not have been very yeah. successful. Yeah. Successful at that. Um, you play the game on the field and the game on the field may be particularly sloppy yeah you know you try and out raise one another which perpetuates the problem mm-hmm. you out hype each other yeah you try and spin more efficiently even though everyone's losing way more money and, and one of my biggest you know things that i've said about this current time is the risk we're taking because of the size of the losses if mm-hmm. you go back to 99 there were a whole bunch of companies going public and everything but no one you know, people were still moving towards profitability right. at 30 or 40 million in right. revenue. Right. And this is way different. There's way fewer companies, whatever the number of unicorns is, but they're being given piles of money, piles. hundreds of min- millions. Right. And burn rates literally are areas we've never seen before. Uh-huh. And steering those back towards profitability, if capital ever becomes scarce, yeah. is going to be a really difficult exercise. So how are you going to do that? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you, you Put you, down you, that free kombucha shake right well, now. Yeah, and look, there's been some things that I think have been super helpful. Chamath speaking out on kind bars and brick walls. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, this summer uh, over at Dropbox, Drew Houston went out on, uh, it looks like he did a press tour mm-hmm. about cutting 35 million of perks out mm-hmm. of Dropbox mm-hmm. and did it in a way that he was proud of. Right. And you've had the Evernote thing as well mm-hmm. where they've corrected some of that stuff. And seeing him as a leader talk about that as a smart exercise right. is awesome. Right. You okay. know, and, and a sign like some of the stuff Katie wrote about that we're moving it, you know, back in the do right you, direction. Do you ever feel you can do anything else to impact entrepreneurs besides writing? I mean, you obviously what what would you write right now if you were doing that essay? Because um, I've got an unwritten, <laughs> I've got an unwritten blog post about unit economics. One of the things that Silicon Valley does when it gets risk seeking, which it did in '99 and and now, is they invest in businesses with lower and lower gross margins. Mm-hmm. And that's riskier, right? you know, and a lot of the times those involve consumer products. And then what they do is they start selling them heavily discounted. And there's this old saying about selling dollars for 85 cents, Mm -hmm. but there's a truism to it. You can create infinite revenue if you sell dollars for 85 cents. Mm -hmm. And if you give consumers more value than you charge them for, they will 
will love you. Mm-hmm. And I, I remind entrepreneurs all the time that Webvan had the highest NPS scores of any company right. I've ever known. Right. It wasn't that the consumer proposition didn't work. It was that the economics the didn't, didn't work. work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they weren't was, charging enough for it, the service. What was level. interesting about that is that conceptually it was the right idea. A lot of things are directionally correct, but it wasn't working out totally. on an economic they should have, basis. They should have been charging more money, right. basically. Um, right. But – but anyway, we're in one of those time frames. Some of that's starting to get cleaned up. You're seeing there's probably been more shutdowns this year than in or the sales. previous three or sales and layoffs. You know, you're mm-hmm. starting to smell for the first time. I've heard signs of some real estate correcting. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that it can be a soft landing. Historically, it hasn't been. Right. What could happen? Oh, what could happen? I mean, some macro is really hard to get right. And yeah. Buffett and oh, those guys an don't election. even try. You got so much so going on. You got an election. I think the European situation's probably a bigger hotbed. Mm-hmm. You know, if Italy or something defects from, from the EU and the kind mm-hmm. of that thing that could cause. China's GDP, a lot of people are worried about. I don't have enough knowledge to know right. whether that could be the, the catalyst, but it could be. All right. Well, we're talking to Bill Gurley about investing in the bubble and some of the things he's written about it. When we get back, we're going to talk about his current investments and some other thoughts that he has going forward. Imagine it's Monday morning. Your smartwatch sends you a traffic update and then suggests a different route to work before you even leave home. Meanwhile, on the way to work, your car sends a notification to your favorite coffee shop, then automatically locates an available parking spot the moment you arrive. The Internet of Things is becoming our reality, and there's one company that is making it happen. Qualcomm. Because of their inventions, we live in a world where everything intelligently connects to everything. Now I've got a question for all of you. If you were an engineer at Qualcomm dreaming up the next Internet of Things innovations, what would you create? Think of the ways that IoT can help the less fortunate, keep our families safe in our homes and cars, or help save the environment. What about games, media, and entertainment? Tell us your ideas on Twitter. Use the hashtags WhyWait and Sweeps, and we'll pick one lucky winner to have lunch with Lauren Good from Too Embarrassed to Ask and me, Kara Swisher. Again, that's hashtags WhyWait and Sweeps. For complete rules and details, please visit recode.net slash WhyWait. You must be 18 to enter. The extended deadline is September 12th, and the monetary value of this lunch is 0.18 Bitcoin. We're here with Bill Gurley, the well-known venture capitalist in Silicon Valley who works at Benchmark. He's been involved in lots and lots of companies. He was an analyst before that, but he's one of the most high-profile venture capitalist VCs in the Valley. Talk a little bit about, today the Journal had a piece about you guys are doing pretty well. A little bit of smack around of Andreessen Horowitz. How do you judge yourselves? It's difficult. The, the, the venture industry, as I, I mentioned earlier, you have to be very fortunate to fall on what people sometimes refer to as positive black swans, mm-hmm. these, these breakout plays. And I think you could spend your whole career and do extremely well and never you know, get behind one of the ones, a Facebook, mm-hmm. a Google, that kind of thing. And it's almost impossible to predict ahead of time what's going to turn into something like that. Right, right. And so it just creates a ton of anxiety. I would also say that you know, it's an extremely cyclical business. Mm-hmm. And so you might be doing well in 99 and really eating crow in 01 or 02. And so mm-hmm. it goes up and down and it's hard. What we try and do internally is we keep track of, you know, what we're doing, what our competitors are doing, and what are the deals 
are the investments that we regret not doing. Mm-hmm. And we just constantly talk what are the about regret, What are the investments? You're oh, right, we'll talk about the ones you've done. but Oh, right now? I mean, it's the obvious ones. It's Airbnb, Pinterest, Slack, mm-hmm. you know, GitHub's one that we're fascinated with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Collison brothers at Stripe. Are, which you didn't do. Which we didn't do. But right. I, I like them more than their business. Right. But I really like them. Can you them. tell me, I mean, to you, that one, you like them more than their business, Pinterest? On them, it's just like the thing I said about growth mindset, mm-hmm. like learn it alls. Mm-hmm. Like they're nuts. Like they they're just begging for information, which mm-hmm. I love. Um, I think with Pinterest, and it's just the size and scope, right? right. It, it got way bigger than we would have predicted. And um, the others? Uh, Slack, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious, yeah. right? It's a viral enterprise tool. Yeah, that, and you didn't that think is, that would be. Well, there had been Hammer, there had been. It tons. was a pivot, it was a game company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was. I remember. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can't you can't kiss them all. And, yeah. and Airbnb, you know, Matt brought it in like his first week he had joined us, and um, and we got caught up on one of our rules about ownership, and redid it for a lower ownership, and then and then it was one gone. of your rules. Do you think you should have rules? What are your biggest rules? <sighs> well, you try you know you try and maximize ownership. Right. Uh, you know, you take a board seat. There, there aren't that many, but but sometimes no academics in garages you, you can you can get into trouble like right, like right. and one of one of the games you play in venture is is to know which rules to break at the right time right and so we constantly challenge ourselves like okay maybe should we maybe be forgetting about like dropping this rule at this moment because right. things are changing does that make you the most insecure people on the planet I don't, I, it might just it, because it feels of like it sometimes chasing chase yeah chasing the breakout when, and 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 look when when the close happens on one of those, like it's actually a really perverse element of the venture industry. Like the moment that John Doerr and Mike Moritz closed the Google investment, which mm-hmm. was probably all of a week and a half. Uh-huh. Like it was the biggest event in both those firms for over a decade. Yeah, and it's something even that knowing happened, it at the time. Something that happened in a week and a half. Right. And for a lot of those companies, and I'll include the ones we're in. If you weren't there, it probably would have come out that way anyway. Right. So talk about so the, the seminal event was that closing event. Right. It was very quick. Right. And and decisions were made quickly, often on an instinct, actually. And, um, and in that case, like we talked about previously, most people's instincts would say, don't do it. Don't do it. So talk about what you did do. Obviously, your biggest, there's a couple at, at Benchmark, but Uber is kind of one of your big ones. Yeah. I've talked to all of you about how that happened, and it, various people, of course, take credit all the time and this <laughs> and that. Um, but it really was uh, Matt and then you and, and yeah. others there. Um, and it, it went back and forth, actually, initially. Yeah, I had, having come out of Open Table being successful, was trying to think of other industries where if you put a network on top of, mm-hmm. would absorb waste and make it more efficient and more usable. And the thesis of cars had come up, and we had met with several of the taxi. There were actually taxi there were startups before Uber. And we had quickly come to the conclusion that doing it on top of taxi wasn't the right way to do it because prices were fixed. There were oligopolies, there's regulation. And if anyone did it on town cars, we would pay attention. So that mm-hmm. was a thesis we had internally when, right. when they popped up. Um, Which was a town car kind of offering. Yeah. And, and so Ride in style, whatever it was. We yeah. immediately cold called them. And uh, I remember meeting with uh, Ryan and Travis and at a restaurant. And then I brought them in. This was before their seed round. And this is the part you're talking about, about going back mm-hmm. and forth. And, and they presented the company to us uh, for the seed round. And we chose not to do it at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And then for the next three or four months. Was it like Calacanis and Saka were in that one? That's right. And then over the next three or four months, Matt became, I think, the number one rider on Uber. 
Mm-hmm. And then, and then, as he's done many times in our partnership, this is Matt Kohler. Yeah, came into the room screaming, "We have to do it! We have to do it! We have to do it!" Yeah, and and so we got aggressively in front of the Series A. And and what did you think at the time? What would happen here? Of the entrepreneur Travis and obviously Garrett Camp was involved and yeah. others. Um, between the time we looked at the seed and when we did the A, Travis had moved into CEO position. Right back, so, yeah. So that it was a different. You yeah, know, Ryan we were involved CEO, right. at the beginning. We were just studying him as a as a like an angel investor in the thing. And by the time the A came around, he was he was the CEO. It was hard. Like like I said, we had a theory that it could be like Open Table. So you know, Open Table was sold for three billion or something. Right. So I'd be inaccurate if I suggested we had a vision that it that could it one day much. you know cause people to question car ownership. Mm-hmm. I, I never had considered that. Right. And what what do you think of the person? He's quite aggressive. Let's he is. He is. Um, so Matt had known him for a while. Um, I actually called Mark Cuban because mm-hmm. Cuban had been That's an investor right. in Red Swoosh. And they had ended up in a disagreement, yet uh, Mark had walked away thinking that Travis was remarkably professional, even though they had different points of opinion, which right. I, I took as a positive. I'd like to think I knew how passionate and you know that he was, mm-hmm. but I didn't. Like mm-hmm. we were taking a chance. Right. Um, I'm remarkably thrilled now. Now that we're involved, um, to see a guy who's just so committed to what he does. Right, but though some say too committed, too aggressive. Is it? Do you provide slow the hell down, stop arguing with people, stop? You know, it's funny. The the book I mentioned earlier, uh, grit. So this woman Angela Duckworth had studied all these people that have uh, been successful and. Mm-hmm. She claims, and there's a big TED video that's only six minutes, Mm -hmm. which is quicker to watch than reading the book, but she says the key characteristic that differentiates successful people from unsuccessful isn't IQ, it's grit. And Mm -hmm. she describes grit as passion and perseverance. Right. And on those two dimensions, I think Travis may be (laughs) completely on on the far rail. One of the board members uh, described him as remarkably all in. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But that could become abrasive and irritating, which to many it has. Uh, Completely understand. I do think that most VCs would probably yearn for most of their their founders and CEOs to have, you know, some of this. Does that have to change? And do you have an impact on that? I think, you know, every one of the entrepreneurs that gets thrown into the limelight in the way that he has Mm -hmm. or or any of the ones that have failures before he really did have a lot of trouble by the way i think those contribute absolutely oh i think it's right at the heart of it he he spent so much time on these startups and one of them went bankrupt one he sold for 20 million dollars and in the first one he sort of got screwed by his investors absolutely and just years and years of trying and I, i often think that the grit is driven by some kind of obligation to the entrepreneur society of America. Cause right. like he knows how hard it is yeah. to be on one of the ones that's not working. Yeah, I felt it was rage. It was just yeah, like, well, this one's going to work. And, gonna- and so you get on one mm-hmm. that has the wind at your back instead yeah. of in your face. And yeah. you're like, I'm going to play it for all it's worth. So and I do feel like that's part of the motivation. Just finishing up on Uber, obviously you're on the, you're on the board, correct? Correct. Where's it going? Public? You know, I don't think that we're going to be going public anytime in the near future because mm-hmm. of all the issues that we just talked about. Right. So we have a large number of competitors, even with the deal done. Right. Well done, are, by the way. Who are, thank you, who are very deep pocketed 
who have decided that their primary form of competition is not going to be like building a different app or or a differentiated service or so a different just, level is just price. Mm -hmm. And so there are intense subsidy battles going on. on all over the world. All over the world. Mm -hmm. And the those companies, when they approach investors, tell them, you know, Uber's going to go public and then they're going to have to be profitable. And then we're right. really going to sneak yeah. up on them with these right. discounts. And so <laughs> while, while that's the game on the field, and it's one that I find to be remarkably messy and mm -hmm. ugly, I don't think it would so be in our best more money interest. Is well, I don't know that we need to. We have $9 billion in the bank and $2 billion of debt, which right. is the most any private company's ever raised. Does that so, frighten you? Uh, yeah, but, but two things. One, I do think that it is one of the best product market fits that have ever come along. Mm -hmm. And I've, as I've come to realize what's possible here, there is a real opportunity to literally change the like. You've the talked face about that a lot America. early on. I remember like car ownership has gotten way too far in our country. You know, two point three per household. I agree. And parking lot. Houston has like four and a half parking spots per car. Mm -hmm. And there's an opportunity to change it. You can actually lower housing pricing if you remove parking requirements. So we're mm -hmm. doing deals now with developers and getting cities to approve them to have mm -hmm. parking-free housing. It's definitely hit into a bigger trend, a yeah. bigger, more important and, trend. And and if you survey people, Recode had an article about a survey like it. And mm -hmm. even though the Recode article was a little dismissive, it said 8% of the people in the survey said that ride-sharing had a strong likelihood to impact car-buying decisions. Mm -hmm. That's 8%. This stuff... Mm -hmm only existed yep, it's five like years smartphones ago. you know early on yeah what will that number yeah. be five years from? oh so, i think absolutely i don't drive yeah. my car anymore yeah and i know i mean obviously we live in a mm -hmm. and but i think it's I a leading edge lots I, of places i know a ton of people have gotten rid of their car does that ruin the idea of public i was at a meeting the other day talking about that it's not private transportation companies do not take the place of public transportation i think most of the ride-sharing companies if you look at heat maps and they've published some of these have huge you know, red areas around public transportation. Mm -hmm. So most of the effective public transportation, which isn't buses, it's mm -hmm. the subways and rails, right. they can't get to that last mile. I see. And, I and there have been studies done that suggest that they're symbiotic, that they actually drive more usage of each. So let's talk, we're going to finish up in just a minute, but I want, what, what else are you in now that you think is very exciting? What um, makes you a excited? A, a couple, I'd, I'd probably mention three. So Nextdoor, which mm -hmm. is a social network for yep. the local neighborhood yep. that's really starting to grow. And, and which I also think has issues, issues they, they, around racism. Around. They have, they've done a really good job of addressing those, I think, in the They're past trying. couple I think weeks. it's like Twitter, it's humanity, right? <laughs> like, absolutely. Although mine is just horrible. I'm like, like, is there any black person who can walk down the street in San Francisco that's not suspect? I'm like, can you stop? Like, yeah, they, they, they've just come out with a whole bunch of new programs on yeah. this front that have even, I think some of the initial people that were upset have, have come around and sanctioned what they're doing. Right. So I feel the good tools about are important. how they've done that. And why do you like that one? What is the... If you go back to like 2006, the local advertising market was like $110 billion. And many of the avenues people would use to microcast advertising mm -hmm. were radio, newspapers, magazines. They've come under threat like by the digital disruption. And there's mm -hmm. not a place for people to bring, bring that out. I also mm -hmm. think just by having a... a, a a social network in the neighborhood. There's lots of features that you can implement mm -hmm. over time. We're starting to do some of those now. What else? Um, and also because we're not dependent on anyone. We're not right. an SEO company. We didn't. Right. We didn't like build on the back of Facebook Connect. Like we we board. built this out ourselves. It didn't work with AOL with Patch, which was interesting. Yeah. It wasn't. Well, Patch was more heavily content oriented. They did. They did a bunch of 
anti-intuitive things yeah. to make the stories the, local to make the liquidity come alive yeah. intuitive founders were from opinions that had built the ugc network before so yeah i mentioned two others stitch fix right. is just an She's incredible amazing. company katrina lake's one of the best i've yeah. ever worked with yeah it's right here in the city most people don't know about it explain it they've built personalized women's fashion although they're they're moving into beta on men's now and i like to think about it no woman that's buying fashion wants to think about it this way, but I like to think about it as money ball Mm -hmm. for women's retail. Mm -hmm. And for every woman that comes in, they fill out a 15 page uh, questionnaire to Mm -hmm. suss out size, fit, style, um, whether it's for work or, or, or social. And then for every item, we measure 66 characteristics. And then there's a data science team that's over 70 people now. Hmm. In fact, Stitch Fix competes they're like the number one competitor to Uber for data science talent huh. in Silicon Valley, wow. which people wouldn't put, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and Eric Colson, who runs that group, came from Netflix and did all the recommendation stuff there. Mm-hmm. And so when when a customer comes in to ask for a new fix, which is an interesting, like, uh, drug metaphor, <laughs> and mm-hmm. this package comes to them, we have a predicted keep score for every item in our inventory, huh. which is a level of analytics brought to this industry mm-hmm. that's maybe Just one or guessing. two orders of magnitude above yeah. whatever you know i covered retail thought. for seven years no, and I one didn't. of the one of the companies that was hot and then it wasn't and i went to the ceo after it was a teen company these things go up and down and i said what happened he goes uh pedal pushers i picked pedal pushers and not culottes and that was the end of me and it was like I, i'm like why he goes i just guessed yeah no, it's really that's, funny I'll and never that's what retail's that. been and we, you know we're now working with merchandisers who have ideas mm-hmm. and they test the ideas against the algorithm right instead of ever shipping them sure. right and sure. and so it's it's really cool the, there's an article written on her recently called moneyball fashionista that huh, has the whole there's all kinds theme. of interesting experiments going yeah, on. yeah it's really cool it's, right, you get one more what else um probably i'd probably talk about hacker one so okay. oh, i don't know that one yeah so Cheryl once said that the smartest thing Facebook ever did on the security front was start a bug bounty program. Mm-hmm. And bug bounty means you basically pay the hackers to find the holes before the bad guys right, do. Right, right. And Microsoft yeah, and there's Facebook. there's all kinds of crowdsourcing on this. Yeah, Microsoft, Facebook, uh, Mozilla. There have been people that have done this before, but they all did it kind of holistically within mm-hmm. their own firm. Uh, Alex Rice, who worked on these programs at Facebook, created a startup that will allow anyone to have a bug bounty program. Mm -hmm. And so in like 18 months, we've got over 500 customers, including Priceline, Salesforce, Uber, Mm -hmm. GM, uh, Home Depot, like the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. And they're all now running bug bounty programs. And then we have a marketplace of all the hackers and all their reputations and skill sets. And it's really cool. And I think you look at the problem, huge problem. Most of the solutions are de- defensive where you're just throwing hardware and software. And this one's offensive, mm-hmm. right? Because you're, you're, you're fighting the battle in front of them. I see. Interesting. It's elegant. Yeah, I and, think and, the crowdsourcing of And Martin Mikos, who ran MySQL, is the CEO oh, there now. That's a really interesting and he's, company. He's, he's, he's I, uh, That one awesome. interests me. I actually yeah, it's that's cool. So what is overhyped? What would I say is overhyped? I mean, well, some of the categories that become difficult, I would say, in this type of world are ones where capital – can create this messy playing field that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And one of those where I think that's happened is in the l- online lending space. Uh-huh, there's a lot of right? those. So, I, so you know, SoFi so, so and, and Avant have raised a billion dollars, mm-hmm. you know, and LendingCub went public and, mm-hmm. and there's OnDeck and mm-hmm. Squares in it. And it's like, mm-hmm. 
if everybody just starts aggressively giving away money, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to build a business, you right, know? Right. And so those are the things that I think get dangerous. Um, I would say that, that some of the ones where we over choreograph are difficult, like, like VR, because mm-hmm. the big guys all pull out their R and D teams and their mm-hmm. guns. And so Samsung and, and mm-hmm. HTC and, Facebook, and yeah. Facebook, like they're all at the table. So for a startup, to kind of most big startup breakouts are where people aren't paying attention, right? As opposed to where like everybody's got their guns lined up. I think that the screen resolution is not there yet, right? And a lot of the demos that get people excited are on thirty, forty thousand dollar equipment, right? Exactly, and it's and hard then, to use. And you put on the stuff that you can buy today, right? And it's pixelated. I had a big argument and, with someone about this. And, and so I do think there's a risk that we run into what's known as a trough of disillusionment before before mm-hmm. you get a breakout mm-hmm. because of that. What about current companies? I'll finish up with this. Twitter. I asked everyone. You know, I'm one of the biggest optimists about what's possible at Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily, most people feel that way. Primarily because the most important people in the world are curating their persona there. Yes. And you can get them to do more work than they're already doing today. Yeah, it was interesting because Mike McHugh is a former board member who's running for the board said it's a though it's a bigger phenomena than it is a company. It, it may, it, look, it may be. I think running businesses at scale is probably the most underrated activity in Silicon Valley relative to how hard it is, yeah. you know, and let Although, everybody... how hard it is. I know you guys are all like, it's so hard. I'm like, I thought you were the smartest people on earth. So fair enough. You know, but no, I, I just I don't mean, really care because like, you're all like rich and running. Smart. Fair enough. But like turn, you know what Donahoe did at eBay is like mm-hmm. really, really mm-hmm. hard. And most entrepreneurs like to take pot shots at big companies right. in a way that I think is disrespectful. What do you imagine will happen to it? Then? You know, there's always a chance that, that there's a sale process. I guess mm-hmm. Ev was, rumored in yeah, the press yesterday talking did. about that. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to to kind of micro-segment around interest groups mm-hmm. such that, like, because today the way the feed's oriented, you know, if mm-hmm. I love all country music, which I do. Me too. I, for me to go something find, I, you know, if Ryan Adams happens to say something mm-hmm. at the right time, I find it, but nothing's, you know, right. I, I, I've thought you could mine the feed and build like a tech meme for everything. Mm -hmm. And so there could be an all country newspaper like Mm -hmm. that's pulling from, and you have like a ranking table and I've talked to Jack and the team about it. I hope one day they do it. I think, I think it could lead to what happens to these companies. I think the problem is there's a smallish company gets a lot of attention because of journalists. And then it's sort of a narrative the way Yahoo became. Yeah, it's possible. And it gets sucked up into that. Yeah, it's possible. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of heat pressure. What is a mistake that you've made and learned from as a venture capitalist or an investor or anything? Like, what do you think? You talked about being too analytical and not and missing some of the instinctual stuff. Is there anything that you did that you're like, oh, I should have done it this way or? Well, my, the media, what do you tell entrepreneurs? The immediate thing that comes to my mind was <laughs> was the Google investment because you can't make a bigger mistake. Yeah. I was trying to think of another one since we already talked That's a about big one. that. Yeah. Um, what went on there as an as an investor or someone who's thinking? You, well, I'd mentioned some of the external data points lead you to have some amount of skepticism. The product usage was already starting to happen. We were all using it in our office. It was a better product, so we can't blame that. And I also, there, we were already talking about you know, oh, you just do what GoTo did. So the business model really wasn't a question either. Like right. everyone was already saying that. Yeah, I think it came down to. The, the price at the time was remarkably high, and 
the team was remarkably self-confident mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a way that it caused you to be questionable yeah, yeah. of whether they could pull crazy. it off. But they did, you yeah. know. So, yeah. so, and and that those are and I, I I go back. I think the learning is that if you have remarkably asymmetric returns, you have to ask yourself, you know, kind of how high could up be. And then that what could go right question right, because right. because it's not it's not a fifty fifty thing on right. the judgment call like if 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 you thought it was a twenty percent chance of doing it you should still do it right because right. the upside so right high. what do you want to invest in now what interests you a great deal now I've been spending like a lot AI, of AI I mean everyone's either terrified <laughs> of it or thrilled with it I've been spending a lot of time looking at the healthcare space ah and you're gonna wait in there well I I look at the technologies. I look at the smartphone. I look at mm -hmm. what we've done with UGC plays. I look at, at what we've done with, you know, even a Zillow in re real estate. And yeah. I say, boy, this thing's really messed up. We ought to be able to fix it. Yeah. Now, my first two years of looking at stuff has caused me to step back a little bit because it is uh, atrociously complex. Mm -hmm. And the way that regulation works, the way that the, the payer is the company who doesn't even really want to be They've in the made process. They've quite a thicket, haven't they? Oh, it's so, it's so messed up. Yeah. And so that's caused – there are some little signs of seedlings that it could become more of a payer mm -hmm. situation. And we're an investor in One Medical, which I think mm -hmm. is exploiting this like the customer wants to be treated like a customer. Right. And they haven't been in right. this They're space. Yeah. And if you if you implement something where they feel that way well, – endure a lot oh god lot. it's ridiculous yeah, yeah. Like, it's so, so ridiculous yeah. anywhere else what else AI I, um, or yeah we look at that kind of stuff i i tend to like the stuff that's applied in in machine learning and ai like like a stitch fix like right. rather than like building something to sell to somebody yeah the things that amazon is doing in both e-tailing and aws causes you to rewrite your right. entire rule set right and it is changing so fast absolutely that you have to almost everything we've done in the past we've got to reconsider all right last question are we in a bubble bill Gurley, <laughs> mr mr anti-bubble yeah, Are no, we in a bub? I, I, I think bowl. certainly we have taken on more risk than we realize mm -hmm. and that there will be consequences of that. Because there's so much money in these things, nothing goes away overnight. Right. And a few very well-known companies have already been recapped, which mm -hmm. means that the investors that were on the cap charter at zero. Mm -hmm. Right, and you don't see that mm -hmm. thing still. Yeah, you know, I'd like to see that. You can along. send me those, <laughs> but but I think there's there'll be more of that. Over more of time. that, and yeah. sales too. Yeah, and see the sales of things as they go, like LinkedIn and others. I think those are the signs of something. Yeah, I profound. think those happen because well, two things. I think when the market stopped going only up and to the right, mm -hmm. you know, I think prior to that, a lot of the unicorn entrepreneurs were like thinking infinity is the top, mm -hmm. and so all of a sudden you shake that a little bit, right? And they get a little more reality, and then then you might be able to bridge a bit ass gap with an acquirer. So Bill Gurley is still worried. I'm, I am, but <laughs> maybe that's my universal state. I think it is. Okay. All right, Bill, thank you so much for coming. No problem. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with TaskRabbit CEO Stacey Brown-Philpot, Walker & Company CEO Tristan Walker, and Hamilton lead producer Jeffrey Seller, just to name a few. All of those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try our other podcast, 
Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thank you to our sponsors, Audible and Qualcomm. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here Monday with another great guest. See you then.